Negative, Major Tom. Negative. It is imperative that you remain in the capsule. It, oh boy, there he goes. It is the distant future of the year 2000. sexy magenta stained book it is really nice it is it's probably one of the nicest looking books that i have i would i would actually say it's probably second only to that special edition of dune that i picked up around the time the movie came out yeah i was gonna say that i like your uh your dune more than than this but uh i mean it's a close second it's it's they're both really beautiful they are both really good uh, the Dune one, I just think, I think the blue is a much more um, vibrant and like kind of eye-popping color than the magenta on Leviathan Wakes, personally. But they're both they're both gorgeous. I am I am such a sucker for stained pages. Well, what I what I like about the Dune thing is that it's the contrast, right? You got the orange and gold and the greens and the blue. This is just like black, uh, white and magenta well there's a little bit of blue but it's like very little on the on the front cover i i think it's the the multi it's just the whole thing kind of flows whereas this is just i don't know less less contrast you know yeah so um welcome to the sad boys book club this is episode five and we are starting leviathan wakes by james s.a Corey. Which is a pseudonym for Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. Yep. Uh, so, I have never read this. I've never read the series. I've never. I've never even watched the show, despite most of my friends telling me that I should watch it because I would love it, and I have no doubt that I would. But I was always. I, I'm. I'm very much a read the book first kind of person. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to read the books before I watched the show, especially since, uh, as I understand it, the show ended uh, before the final book came out. Yeah, I, I'm, I'll be interested. I, I want, to, I'm going to reserve judgment for whether I'm going to watch the show at, until when, when we finish. But I guess to just give you like an overall view of where I'm at right now, after what well, we read the first ten chapters, which is the first 100 pages. Um, it was nine wow, chapters. We, we, we stopped at the start of chapter ten. That yeah, that's fair. We we read the first nine chapters, stopping at the beginning of chapter ten. I I don't know. I I like it so far. Um, I'm not really like bonding, or maybe bonding's the wrong word, but I'm not really like vibing with any of the characters so much necessarily. But the plot is very interesting, and the world so far is is also very interesting. I'm sorry you feel that way because at least so far where I'm at is uh I like Holden. Uh I'm 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 curious to see where his story goes and how he grows as a character especially given the circumstances that has now made him the captain of the mm-hmm. shuttle knight. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into to why I I'm just kind of lukewarm on him as we go along. Yeah, I I feel like he's still not necessarily a blank sta- a blank slate, but he's he's still very much in the developmental stage of his character arc. I feel so. Sure. There's there's still a lot to 
kind of built for him. He's very much in the, um, uh, oh god, I don't remember all the stages of the hero's journey, but he's still in that, like, Luke on Tatooine phase of his character arc, I feel. Uh, I like Miller. Uh, I think Miller is a, is a, an interesting character that gives us a, uh, a, a belter side of things, which I, I, I want to talk about the, that dichotomy in a minute once we get past this little opening, but, uh, I think my favorite character so far is Naomi. I love her. She's fantastic. She gives me yeah, that, I... she gives me that Gina Torres in, uh, Firefly vibes and I love it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think I think overall Naomi is if I, if I had to point to a single character that I liked, uh, it would probably be her. I mean, we the book kind of opens with a little with a point of view character that we don't get back to at least at the point where we're at. Um, it's it's her name is uh, Julie Mao, and uh, I gotta say I, that first when I start opened this book that like those first few pages I was like. What in God's name is Dusty making me read? I totally like, forgot that the POV character in the prologue was Julie Mao. And given that uh, chapter 9 is about Miller investigating her, I just I, I don't know why I forgot that that was her. That just kind of made a lot of things click for me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That she she seems all right. I mean, I mean ba- based on her... I guess that we don't really know a lot about her from her uh, we, from her actions. We we mostly know about her from what we see later um, in Miller's investigation into her background as he's um, well preparing to kidnap her. But we'll we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll, we'll clear that later. Um, but but where we open, so she's she's one of basically the last surviving crew member on on her ship, which is called. The, the scopuli or the scopuli that's right yeah i've been just calling it the scopuli in my in my reading in, in my head um but i don't know maybe it is scopuli but so anyway she's like the last surviving crew member and she's there's some sort of invading force it's not really made clear who or what it is um but she's basically hiding in a in a locker and drinking her urine and there was a lot of urine talk, um, not yeah. just in that first chapter, but like in this in this whole this whole t- first ten ten uh, no first nine chapters, way more discussion about urine than I was really expecting. And I, I got to say, I was I was questioning you just a little bit um, at, at at first for that reason. Uh, I you know for the record. Uh... I, I did go into this with no information whatsoever other than it's a sci-fi novel that people love and you and I are both suckers for sci-fi so that's that's fair I that's why it wasn't like too much it was just I, I didn't really blame you I, was, I didn't think you were like you were behind this but I was like what did, what has he gotten us into kind of situation yeah but anyway so so apart from that so so Julie she's she's uh, been hiding out for I think Overall, she was hidden for it six days, it I think. Or was I thought it, it was eight eight days, because uh, I think it was like six days, six days, and then she waited another two days when she didn't hear anything or so, something crazy like that. You might be right. I, I remember it makes a point to to reference that she'd been in there for six days and then something happened and then maybe it was like two more. I I don't. It's been like a week since I read that that prologue and I I did kind of speed through it for the record, so I may not have every detail committed to memory anymore. 
Yeah, that that's fair. And so she's she's after that she's leave she leaves her little her little locker. Oh, there's one thing that she she hears. Um, this is pretty early on in in her locker time. She's, I think it's about four days in. She's getting ready to to try to leave when she hears outside uh, of the locker one of her uh, one of her, the, her crew members pleading for their lives. And then it sounds like they're getting thrown out of the airlock. Yeah, he gets um, what Javik craved to do. He gets he gets the Javik special. Yes, he does. Um, but you know, I, 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 I through all this point, you know, it, it the, to the to the credit of, I'm just going to I'm just going I don't remember their names. I'm going to be honest. I just read their names, but. I'm just going to call them Corey as a unit because that is what they're using as their pen name. I think that's I'm fair. Just, so, so, so what Corey does here is he does a, a really good job of of creating a, this he, he of of this the sense of oppressiveness, and it's like it's it's a very uncomfortable read um, for for numerous reasons. Uh, at first, it's just apart from you know the things we mentioned, it's just he does a really good job of capturing the the claustrophobia and like the the sense of dread um but i do i think that they or that there's not a lot that is communicated in a good way like you're you're still you you still are not fully cognizant of the nature of the threat to julie and the reason i'm being kind of cagey about it as well is because after she gets out, she uh, she leaves. She's going around the ship, and what's remarkable is that you know there's nobody there. There's not really even that much of a, a signs of of struggle or anything that's really happened um, until she gets into the engineering deck, and she sees one of the reactors has been covered in this very grotesque fleshy mass, and. Um, She's obviously um, taken aback, and uh, at that point, she sees protruding from the fleshy mass the head of one of her crewmates, um, asking her to help. It was the captain, and then we, wasn't it? It was the captain, yeah. And then, and then the her her part of the story uh, heretofore ends. We we don't, we don't know what's what happens next there. Um, so, given the importance of her character. Uh, out uh, obviously her being a prologue character that doesn't necessarily mean that she's important uh, a lot of times you know in a lot of books they'll just use the prologue character as a conduit to, to establish the story and then kill them off at the end uh, George mm-hmm. Martin does this quite frequently sorry I don't mean to interrupt but I think it's important to point out also uh, for that comparison specifically um, that one of the guys that makes up the, the James Corey partnership Actually, didn't he work for uh, R, uh, George R. R. Martin as like an assistant or something? Yeah, if I remember correctly, he was like a, an editor or a, or a an, ass, an assistant or something. I don't know all of the the different positions that uh, author assistants are, but yeah, he he worked with uh, George Martin for for a time. I think until until writing these books, which was 2011 when the first one came out, I think. Mm-hmm. So he either went up through a Dance with Dragons or a little before. I don't know. I I didn't look too deeply into this. I just know that he worked with George Martin for a long time. 
Sure. I and I, I don't necessarily think it's like super big deal. I just wanted to point out that he was obviously clearly influenced by his his work with Martin. Yeah, I can see some of it too. I can see some of the the kind of uh, osmosis that comes with working with someone like that uh, permeate through some of this book. Nothing uh, nothing super crazy. Not not something you would know Martin for, like his uh, his vivid descriptions of sex and food. Nothing quite like that, but I do feel that kind of that weight that you can find in some pieces of uh, Ice and Fire in here as well. That some of that, uh, some of that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not foundation, but that some of that genetic kind of backbone. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, one thing I, I just thought I would point out is that's kind of interesting. Is that it's almost like a 180 degrees away from the Martin-esque um, food depictions because all that you really see here are like protein bars. They're like, I, I very there, there's it's very pointedly. It's almost almost. Um, I wonder if it's it's intentional. Even it's like very pointedly little description of food. Yeah, it's like like the most you'll hear is like. And then he threw a protein bar at Naomi or something like that. Yeah, it's you know it's one of those things where uh, it it almost has some sort of grounded realism where in space you don't have fresh food. Like yeah, I'm sure they they have like refrigerators and shit, but you know you have to you have to plan for long voyages where you're not gonna restock super super frequently especially in in situations like the canterbury who's going back and forth from saturn station to saris Mm -hmm. uh well so it makes sense yeah that's one of the big things actually of the book that that um they really do this to kind of get you into the psychology of the the belters which is a, a term that is used to refer to the people that live um you know the the people that live outside of the reaches of the like the interplanetary I guess places where like closer they don't live closer to earth or Mars. They're kind of in star Wars. They kind of use the term outer rim, but it's not quite apt because a lot of these people, they don't necessarily live on a planet, but a lot of them seem to live in like, uh, installations or like space stations or something like that. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me look where on the, on the map, the handy, any map we have here where Sarah's is. Oh, yeah. Forgot, so we had a map. Yeah, so I mean, belters. I, I feel like it's it's decently self-explanatory. They're in, they're in the asteroid belt that separates <laughs> um, the first four planets with the back four planets. Um, so yeah, it seems like we have like three or at least like three and a half factions so far. We've got the <laughs> um, I guess we'd call them the interplanetary people, but even then, I feel like those should be separated into Earthers and Martians. So that's why I say yeah, like but- three and a half. Yeah, they they very pointedly um, point out that that Earth, the relationship between Earth and Mars um, is all is pretty much constantly in flux. Like it 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 gets worse and better over over time, over the centuries. Even I don't, I'm not sure how far in the future this is supposed to be, but they did mention there is a centuries long history between Earth and Mars that was it's not always like very warm or positive. Yeah, and then after that we have the Belters, which are the people that live along the asteroid belt. Which something I find uh, before I, I jump into the the outer, uh, something I find really cool about this uh, the story so far is how the effect of gravity 
has a realistic, I'm assuming realistic, uh, take on uh, growth and development in humans. So we have the uh, we they 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 call them all Earthers, uh, even if they're Martian. I feel like, or maybe is they, they. I forgot well, if there's another term for it. I think they they say at one point that Martians they're, they're similar in sort of the physiognomy, but they but like Earthers are they're they're the short shorter stocky because of the effects of gravity, obviously. But yeah, the uh, the Belters, the Belters are taller lankier more slim because mm-hmm. of the lower gravity compared to earthers and i think that's that's really cool but something about that that i also i find this interesting is how it creates a new sort of uh prejudice to where it's you know in in modern society we have people who have prejudices based on someone's skin color or their nationality or their sexuality or anything like that and in this world None of that matters anymore. It's purely just what planet you were born on, which is a more a more um, macro scale of racism, comparatively. Because I, yeah. I guess that's that's I, I guess that's a logical, albeit very um, pessimistic take on a hypothetical uh, starbound future for humankind. Well, I think it's it's kind of a, a function of like the uh, the economic nature of their relations that it kind of gives rise to these things. I mean, obviously, there's they have you have their their surface level physical uh, differences, which I, I agree is an interesting and cool take. Um, it's something that I I don't really I've, I've not really seen done in anything, and I, I think it's it's an definitely interesting way of uh, of representing that. I think the differences really lie in, in in terms of like the economic relationship between the belt and the inner planets. I think it's it's a lot more um, the the places the 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 outer the people in the belt the belters they they live a mostly like subsistence and extraction based um, economy. Like they they don't really seem to be there's not like a lot of like heavy industry that we've seen so far. Uh, or any kind of really um, like major economic modes of development. We you don't see like a tech industry or health industry. Again, that's kind of early on, but a lot of what you're getting the sense of here is that they are like an extraction based economy. And you know historically that's that's kind of become that's that's a lot of um, that 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 undergirds a lot of like the relationships between and and negative feelings between the two between different classes of society so you know you have countries that that uh they benefit from extraction and that kind of like this is it's not like a directly colonial relationship necessarily all the time but like it is like a uh, economic colonial relationship where they the the uh extractive people they they produce the the raw goods but they don't really see a lot of the the uh the surplus from the refinement and uh, use of these things and oftentimes they live in very humble um circumstances and i think that's something that they really show in uh in leviathan wakes uh to this point is that you know the people that live in in the the belters and the and oftentimes the people that work on the the ships that come that do the uh extraction they are very they live very kind of like 
meager lives. They live in small little, um, little. I think at one point they even just refer to them as holes. Yeah, um, they even. refer to. I, I I can only assume that they're apartments. They refer to them as holes. Yeah, I think they were like drilled into the side of an asteroid. But the point is, they live in literal holes. You know, like yes, they have like walls and and like stuff. But it's like these are people that are living a very kind of meager existence you know and then there's there's a lot of um uh the the earthers and especially as we come to see later the martians are very heavy-handed about their military um might so that that kind of creates like a a sense of like you you get a sense of like a lot of uh belters are resentful towards interplanetary people because of their uh, because of the i think in large part because of the the economic relations and the and the um high-handed treatment that they often receive from the these interplanetary um people whereas i think the the uh the feelings towards the belters from the inner it's it's like that that madman meme it's like I don't think about you at all kind of yeah. thing. It's like they, they're kind of like an afterthought. They're just like, just shut up and, and get me or get me the resources, you know, that kind of thing. They're, they're not very, it's not a very warm relationship. And you see that a lot in the, um, the, the governance that we do, the little bit that we do see. We see that these are mostly like corporate appointed uh, governments, which it, it lends it a very distinctly uh kind of cyberpunk-esque dystopian feel in that respect it's the the corporate governance of you know of these uh settlements you know yeah and i get that a lot through um the the belters too i get a I get a really heavy uh blade runner vibe from it on uh on saris when you have uh the belters and they have some sort of weird kind of low language where there's a lot of slang and just chopping up words and then you have also mixes of german and spanish in there as well mm-hmm. it reminds me yeah. of uh the language in blade runner where it's like a it's like a, a mix of a bunch of different languages but mostly like i think mandarin in blade runner i think that's right i think it was like mandarin and english kind of a hybrid language yeah so chapter i think it was chapter two when it's miller uh, when they when it was showing all that, I was just getting really heavy Blade Runner vibes from it. I'm like, man, I'm gonna love this book. I know it. Yeah, it's you know that that's so. When I say said earlier that I'm like not super bonded to any character yet, that but I'm I am enjoying like the world and the what we're seeing about and the plot so far. I'm sure I'll I'll get around to you know feeling more positively about the characters. But as as you know as the as the story goes on but i just i really have to give a lot of credit to Corey for the world building here it is it is really good i i find myself really invested in in the uh i say i, I say the world but really it is the the, the solar system that he that uh, he they have crafted uh so far and we're, we're i still feel like we're, we're on page was it 101 is chapter 10 I, I don't i haven't looked at how many pages are in this book but we're 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 a good way through it. There's not 600, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about 561 pages, 
and we're on page one. We, we've, we've read 100, so we're a little under 20% of the way through this book, and plot-wise, not a lot has happened, but I really feel like I have a really firm understanding of at least the bare-bones idea of how this universe works, like some of the more foundational ideas, especially it's it, the most heavy-handed spot, but I feel like it's the most important spot is the relationship between the inner planets, the belters, and the outer planets. Mm-hmm. And that's been really well done, and I think that's you know that's going to be the source of the conflict of at least this novel. I, I, I don't want to speak to the series as a whole. But yeah, the setup with this um, ambiguous, was it Mars, was it not Mars thing, that the, the inciting incident of this novel... Uh, yeah, I feel like it, it, it. It's all. It's all breeding from the tensions come from this. This racism, for lack of a better term, and uh, I don't want to go as far as to say oppression. Maybe there is a little bit of oppression. We can definitely see some small scale form of it with the well, story I, about Anderson Station. I, I would say there there definitely is a level of oppression. I mean, you know, like we're saying, like the the. Uh, the people that are doing the predominance of the the labor, the the mining and the extraction industry, like I've said, you know, they're living in literal holes, and they're living under like corporate, total like a like a very totalitarian corporate rule. Like you see, um, like there's not a lot of sort of civil rights that these people are afforded, um, and frankly, the 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 uh, security forces uh, and this is, are operate as like. There's there's not a lot of restrictions on them. They're able to like, kind of go into people's uh, uh, dwellings without any kind of restrictions. And well, the the reason I, I mention this is because the whole the whole point of Miller, or Miller's story uh, here here to this point is that he he's he's a detective right on um, on the station, and he kind of he he's mostly what he's wants to be involved in is kind of like these low-level street crimes and, like, gang tensions. That's something that, that we see at, at the beginning of his story. He's he's looking, he's interested in looking into. But very quickly, he gets um, t- involved um, by his, his superiors in this plot to kidnap Julie. Um, which, you know... Is, is kind of a is a very strange strange thing uh, we don't really have a lot of the details uh, we, we know that Julie is a scion of wealth um, she is a she is the daughter of a of of this family that controls this very uh, powerful shipping industry not one of the most powerful but like a pretty powerful one and so she she's kind of like a, a free spirit um, she very much sympathizes with the sort of outer planet peoples. And um, they mentioned in her college year she's been involved in different advocacy groups for those people, um, and as well as later kind of like joining a more, um, I guess, a more militant, I would say, um, sort of resistance group. They, they, the book likens them to the IRA, but we haven't really seen a lot of their activities yet. But she is a member of this group called the, the OPA, which is the Outer Planet uh, what was that again? alliance i think outer planet yeah outer planetary alliance something like that and uh she is essentially you know she's she's involved in this because i think she there is that that sort of friction and oppression by the uh by the the interplanetary people 
Yeah, and and something that uh, I really liked was the the relationship they've established so far between Miller and his partner Havelock, who is mm-hmm. uh, who's an Earther who's come to the Sarah Station uh, to be part of the the police force there, and uh, I, I think it's a it's a great kind of. It, this this is a pretty common trope the uh, having the the person that is somewhat fish out of water being placed into a situation where they are under some form of prejudice compared to their their superior their trainer or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that that's kind of what Havelock is which he's not, I wouldn't go as far as to say he he's an important character at least not yet he's, he's he's just a conduit for Miller he's not exactly like Ethan Hawke in Training Day I haven't seen that. Situ- Oh, it's a good movie. Great, I've heard. great Denzel performance. Great uh, Ethan Hawke performance. Yeah, uh, but it's, I've, I've it's, heard it's, good. it's not quite that level, but it is a similar conceit, I would say, because he, you know, Havelock has like his own way of uh, his way of thinking on the way things should be done, and then there's like a, a, a the the way that they handle things out in the belt. Um, he he definitely works as kind of like. Um, closer not exactly but closer to like an audience uh, or i guess reader pov character he'll ask the questions that a lot of the people i'm sure that uh cory is anticipating that the readers would ask yeah and he also he also gives us some more personal context for the prejudices because you have the bit where uh is it with i, I think it's with miller and, and havelock where they're they're explaining the um the difference on how it's like, oh, you know, you never had to be raised in a place where the air you were breathing wasn't recycled or the water you were breathing. Like, like it was like the, the, the rain that fell on you was dirty, but it was still usable. And the air that you breathed was unclean, but it, you could still survive on it. And it, it, that that kind of comparison of where I think a lot of the, the hate for the, um, the interplanet people comes from with the Belters is the you get to live on these planets that have these natural resources where you don't have to worry about... Yeah, 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 this is with Miller, because this is when he's telling the story about when he worked in uh, in Homicide or something like that, where there was the, mm-hmm. the the engineer guy that was working on the uh, the air recycling for a bunch of apartments, and he let let mold, and then they, they, they killed him and threw him out the airlock or whatever. Um, yeah, you get this this difference where it's like with the Belters, their, their, their way of life, I, I want to say for lack of a better term, is, is artificial, like all of their, you you have ships like the Canterbury who have to go back and forth uh, at least twice a year at least, for the Canterbury, at least from what I've gathered from what Holden was thinking to himself, where they're bringing these icebergs from. One, I'm assuming one of the moons of Saturn, uh, mm-hmm. so that they can be used as water for uh, for Sarah Station. So that the people can, you know, that it's it's water. It's 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 more than just for drinking or bathing or anything like that. It's also for the the cooling systems and the ventilation and shit like that. And Havelock even says, "Oh, I'm, why is everybody so up in arms about this? Like, yeah, it sucked that this happened, but it's it's still a, a somewhat drop in the bucket for the amount of water that this station needs." And and Miller's like, "You just don't understand because you're an Earther. You you always had this access, whereas with us, we have to." have this this reliance on the systems working and if they don't work then we're fucked because this is this is what we we need if if the air is bad we all we all uh suffocate if the airlocks are bad we all get sucked in space if there's no water if there's no clean water we we uh 
they die. Yeah, know? they die. So it's it, it is it is a nice kind of in your face. This is this is where a lot of because there's even a comment to where Havelock says you're starting to sound like that racist propaganda, and Miller said that's not what I mean. And then in the back of his mind, he says, but maybe it is what I mean. So yeah, it's I, it's cool that you get that that really blunt uh, display of of where these prejudices come from, at least some, some mm-hmm. of them, and and how something that doesn't seem like a privilege to us because you know for us that this is just it's earth everyone lives on earth this is just what we know and what we understand something that doesn't really seem like a privilege to us you look at the 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 belters and you're like yeah i can i can start to see how this can change your your way of thinking on some things yeah not to the point of racism i don't i don't support the racism side of it but i can understand the uh the resentment at least yeah i definitely see that um it's it's a it's a very interesting and feels very organic and very realistic sort of take on I think how the stratification of society and I guess the development of a society in terms of the belters. So I think we should we should shift to uh, we we've been kind of dancing around this uh, the cause of the like uh, as I said earlier earlier the inciting action to the the conflict of of the story at least as i understand it as of now and so we have our main character james holden who is part of this uh this crew on the ship called the canterbury who travels back and forth between saturn station and and saris delivering icebergs for the water supply and on their way to saris on their way back to saris with uh, a, a big old iceberg they get a, a distress call from the scopuli that they have to go investigate, and when they go and investigate it, well, it's interesting because they they also they they have this really interesting conversation where they are they're like not, not sure whether or not that they're going to go do it, right? They they're they're like okay, well, I mean, this is the Belter way of life that we we have to answer any and all um, emergency signals. Yeah, it's 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 a a legal and a moral obligation that they have to investigate signals if they are the closest ship to it. Yeah, but they're kind of also like, but what if we didn't? You know, they're kind of like, like yeah. kind of like trying to kind of like dance around it. But well, they Captain McDowell is. Yeah, Captain McDowell. That's right. He's kind of like, but what if we didn't? But uh, Holden, being the upstanding uh, XO, you know, he's he's pushing that. Look, we're the only ship in a million clicks around. We need to we need to go take a look. Also, what the heck is a click? I don't know. I, I've looked it up before, uh, and I, I, I saw it, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. But uh, here, let me just do it real quick. How far is a click? One kilometer. One kilometer. Okay, wow. Uh, that makes sense uh, in hindsight. <laughs> Uh, click being short for kilometer that that makes sense in hindsight but uh yeah i i never really bothered to check myself no no i never did either that's that's good to know i guess that that really i don't know they do a good job i guess then using using that as a metric to of like uh cory does a good job of really highlighting the sort of sense of remoteness you know yeah like i can't i can't even really fathom a million kilometers like that that just i try to picture it in my mind and like i i cannot 
you know, so that that is a that's a really interesting image. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, so they they get to the the scopuli and Holden uh goes off on the the night shuttle with Naomi, Amos, Shed, and Alex. Um. Uh, Alex is their pilot. Um. Yes, and he is from Texas Mars. I thought that was a very that was a very amusing um amusing little piece of uh backstory there as they talk they say that all these Martians maybe not all but a significant portion of the Martians have a very significant uh, at least in English affected Texas accent which is amusing because they're not actually from Texas it's just like an inherited accent but also it's the there was apparently not that many there was like a, a group of Texans but it was a predominantly, uh, at least in the settlement where the Texas accent originated, a predominantly like a Chinese and Indian uh, concern. But they described the accent spreading like a virus. And I, yeah. I don't know. I, as someone from Texas, I, I did find that a little bit amusing. Yeah, they said it was what well, it was an, an East a, an East India colonization along with China and people from and some cowboys from Texas or something. I, I got a good chuckle out of that. Yeah, it's just it's it's an amusing. Uh, image to to think about the 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 uh, Martian cowboy. That must have been. I I I I would like to hope that Alex is accurate in the show. So that must have been a lot of fun for whoever they cast to play Alex, just to uh just to to just do that. Just a uh, hey there, Captain. Uh, howdy doody. Let's go on our ship and fly on to the to the to the uh, Scopula. Here we go. Wee. And he even he even has that kind of uh. That attitude that you kind of see from uh, from people in Texas that uh, I feel like I can safely say this because I'm a Texan. Uh, they it has he, he kind of has some of those like telltale attitudes that you can see from Texas people that kind of uh, which I, I thought that was that was very funny as someone who is who's grown up around people that that act similar to Alex. I, I just got a, a kick out of that because it just it just reminded me of that and that that was funny. Yeah, it was very. It was, it was. He was a very amusing character. He's also pretty likable. Um, I might be showing my my uh, my my own Texanness there, but I, I I did find him pretty likable. Yeah. So they make it to the Scopuli, and nothing's there. Just absolutely nothing. They find the distress beacon. It hasn't been activated. They find a different device, which was what actually sent the beacon. And they're like, "Uh oh, this might have been something that trigger that also triggers when." somebody finds it so they start heading back to the canterbury and uh also i I just wanted to also point out just real quick one thing that they also find during that investigation is again they find no no signs of a struggle and two like on the exterior of the the hull of the ship it the they see that it's been blown up with like detonation charges it hasn't been like accessed in another way it hasn't been hit by a missile it was blown up by detonation charges which is one of the reasons between that and the uh the the not fake distress signal but like the the distress signal that doesn't actually come from the scopuli but was like a it was the planted one that, yeah it was a planted rigged up kind of system they had there that was what really what kind of clued in um a setup yeah, it was yeah. The, the, there was something really weird here that this is said they needed to to evacuate. 
Yeah, so as they're heading back to the Canterbury, uh, the Canterbury finds a ship that was using some sort of stealth tech to hide their heat signatures, uh, and that ship ends up shooting six nuclear torpedoes and nuking the hell out of the Canterbury into nothingness, which, boy, I was not expecting that. Yeah, that was that, that was a really um, pretty sharp um, moment, especially because... They, I think they really, and maybe aid was used for this way. Um, Ade was set up as kind of Holden's um, love interest. Um, they, they, they kind of indicated that they had some sort of uh, romantic entanglement. Um, it was, it was, so it they, felt very one-sided, though. I, I think it was Ade kind of humored him, but was also kind of enjoyed the attention as well. Is what what I what I got from all that. Yeah. Um, but it was. Uh, so anyway, Ade was kind of like our... They, they kind of played that up, I think, to really set in to make sure that moment really hit. You know, like the missile that hit um, <laughs> the Canterbury. It, it was... It, it, she. I, I think Ade was created to... Um, give give an to, emotional to connection to the tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Because I think a lot of, a lot of books, a lot of... Sometimes readers have a hard time, like, really... If they don't have that that connection, they may not key into like the emotion of the moment or the author's emotion of the moment. Yeah. And so I think I think she's kind of a creation um, for that specifically. Yeah. And to get, to give an example, uh, as much as I love this movie and I, I I find it to be subjectively flawless despite it having many flaws, uh, I don't ever really feel a resounding connection to Alderaan when it gets destroyed by the Death Star. It's just kind of one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, yeah, this is something that it's 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 done to, to to really just show the might of the Death Star and the ruthlessness of the Empire. I don't feel an emotional connection. I I, I feel sympathy for Leia, knowing that her her quote unquote home planet uh, was destroyed and her family was destroyed. And yeah, through the prequels, we get Bail Organa, and we can assume that that good old Jimmy Smits was killed in the explosion too. And it's like, ah, oh, man, I liked him. Uh, but even still, when I go back and watch Star Wars, uh, I watched it a couple months ago, and I, I still don't really feel like that deep kind of emotional connection to Alderaan in a similar way that I feel like Corey did in having us have that emotional connection with the Canterbury, which I do think part of that does come from Alderaan is just a ball in space that we see explode, whereas the Canterbury was a ship full of people that we interacted with that we saw explode. Mm-hmm. So I think the difference is a little more of a personal connection as more uh, we, we saw these people and we knew these people uh, instead of it being a more abstract where it's like, this is a planet that's full of people. You don't know them, but it's full of people. So there's there's a more personal involvement there. So yeah, I just feel like that, that's a decent example of two different ways to, to handle a big tragedy like that and one that has an, a personal emotional investment that's established for the reader or the viewer and one that I think... This isn't a, a fault on Star Wars, but one that doesn't have that emotional connection, at least in the same way, at least to me. It does point to a certain natural human urge, and I think that's why, you know, like you're saying, you, you connect more to the Canterbury because you know people there, whereas Alderaan, like you said, it's the ball, it's the abstract idea. Yeah, it, it's, it really goes with anything. If you, 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 you break something down to a more micro level and it has more of, a, of a, an impact on you, like if you if you hear a statistic that says 
uh, every year, I'm making this up, by the way, uh, every year, one million dogs are left stranded and alone in, in the U.S. alone. You're just like, oh, that sucks. That, that That's t- terrible. I wish we could do something about those dogs. But then you see one of those Sarah McLaughlin commercials where In the Arms of the Angel is playing, and you get, like, five or six dogs, and it's slow motion, and they all look sad because the music's playing. And you're just like, oh, man, I can spare 15 cents a day. Yeah, it's 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 like that. You know, you once it gets a little more like ma- micro and personal, then it starts to have a little more of a of a of an emotional weight on you. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair a fair way to look at it. So yeah, after the Canterbury is nuked into oblivion, the ship starts to leave, and Holden on the shuttle essentially hails the 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 fleeing ship and says, "Hey." You just killed all these people. I'm gonna send you their files and their pictures so you can live with that. That was my that was my like, dude, what are you doing? That's that's why I haven't connected fully with Holden. I guess that's one of the moments. It was like, what are you doing, you crazy man? Because they they could have just because they were in hiding essentially because they they had gone behind a smaller like, I guess meteorite and they were they were hidden and then he blasts open the on on the the radio he's like i'm going to he's he's so mad and obviously sensibly so but it's like your primary responsibility in that moment is you have to keep everybody alive you have to and if nothing else you have to stay alive as the witnesses of this incident you know it was very much a go ahead shoot me you won't kind of moment and it, it did work out like they 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 targeted them with their their laser uh, designator and then we're just like eh whatever and then they just they just left <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. oh well it, it worked yeah they peace out <laughs> which i i, I thought it was a funny little move that holden did that yeah that was that that was pretty crazy and i think at first he even goes to try to chase after them yeah like he, he tells he them, like, in in that in that little bucket to go after that like stealth attack ship that you know that that's has that's like nuclear capable in their little their little shuttle. I thought that was that was almost that was an almost comical moment as well. I mean, hey, Solid Snake defeated a nuclear equipped walking battle tank with a box of grenades. So that's true, but uh, right, it was C four, you know, but you get my point. I, I, I the but at this point, I gotta say, he's no solid. He's no uh, he's no naked snake. Uh, but anyway, he uh, anyway I think he does has some more uh, radio escapades um, after that. Yeah, he, he he sends out a global or maybe not global is the right word a just general broadcast to everyone, being like, "Hey, so uh, my ship, the Canterbury, just got destroyed. Here's all the info, the the video footage that we found, and all the documents on that. Also, we found this this distress signal on the on the Scopuli with a battery that's printed with the Mars, uh, the the Mars Colonial Republic Navy, or I, I don't remember what MCN MCN MCRN stood for. I know the N was Navy. But yeah, basically the Mars Navy insignia on it. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what we found. Have fun with that information. Bye. And of course, that causes a panic. And a riot in the belt because everybody hates Mars and uh, as it is, and now it's like, oh, they're killing our people and and they're trying to stop us from getting our resources. Oh, it's war! Yeah, that that's how these two stories interconnect. That because immediately after that, we we kick back over to uh, Miller and Havelock. Yeah, and 
that situation is just, uh, it starts out very, very unfortunate, and about as to what you'd expect, people rioting, people causing a ruckus, because now they're, they're just, they're just, uh, they're ready for war at this point, everybody already hated everybody, and now this is just the, the spark that, that, uh, ignited the flame, so, yeah, yeah. that's where we're, we're kind of set up from a global scale, moving forward with the plot, in terms of the world itself, that's where that's where we're at with this. the The tensions are now at critical mass between the OPA and the inner, uh, the inner planets, specifically Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, they the way they kind of set it up, um, and this is something that when we kind of we kind of cut back to um, to the on the the board on board the night. That's something that they mention is there. There's a lot of um, I guess they have a lot of fear about what the Martians are going to do to them. They talk because they they're like that. That's um, they talk about how that they're the Martian. They're worried that the Martians are going to torture them. They're worried that the Martians are going to just flat out disappear them um, because after after that uh, that broadcast gets out and after we see uh, the the riot on the station, they 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 find they kind of calm everybody down. There, uh, I, I just want to go back to that just really briefly because there's a very, um, a very moment that I, I found very kind of poignant, um, especially. Um, may, I'm sure at the time it was very, it was pretty poignant, but it's especially now in in the kind of the inter the intervening years since the book has come out is like this sort of sense of like faux normalcy after after a major crisis when you're like the the kind of like the anxious um going about your day-to-day life in an attempt to kind of like have a fake normalcy while you're waiting on some some major event to to happen or some other shoe to drop and i think that's kind of i think that's kind of how a lot of people have felt um in our world over the last couple of years like there's been a lot of unsettling events you know yeah we have uh we have a real world equivalent of basically like the 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 this post-riot thing in uh in saris is very comparable to i imagine how a lot of people myself included felt on january 7th yeah yeah it's it's that sort of um that sort of like so what what is gonna happen next so what what comes next kind of yeah, feeling. we got the hell of, of the day before, and then the day after, we're just kind of sitting there just like, all right, so how are the next two weeks going to go? But yeah, I, I, I see what you mean, though. It's 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 It does a good job of, like, capturing the feeling that I think a lot of people have had during, like, big these big crisis moments. Yeah, or even... Uh, over the... Maybe a better example would be, like, September 12th. Yeah, you know, stuff stuff like that. like Or, like, just... Just these these big events they occur and people are, they're they're just trying to go about their day to day life and it's it's clear that there's like a lot of anxiety and that it's something has shifted in the people even though they're trying to go about their day to day life. So obviously the the security staff that um, that Miller and Havelock represent they are in Miller's case uh, or no in Havelock's case directly as he is an Earther but like they. Uh, they make a point of saying this, like on the day after the riots, um, other people were looking at Miller differently and acting a little bit differently around him. 
because you know he is um, he may be uh, he may be from there, but he is a representative of uh, the the security force, which is uh, a contracted by an an Earth group. So there's kind of like this heightened feeling of anxiety, uh, even though they're kind of going through the pantomime of of normalcy. Yeah, and you have that moment earlier before this happened where Miller and Havelock are talking and uh Miller says that uh you know you know you uh you earth you uh you earthers and martians are all the same and uh Havelock's like if if a martian uh heard uh, uh, if a martian heard you say that he'd kick your ass because you know no martian wants to be compared to an earther and Miller's like yeah I mean that may be true for you but when from our point of view you guys are both basically the same yeah, and that that's I think that's that was a very interesting, um, a very interesting kind of moment as well. The kind of that was that was one they they do a really good job, not to not to keep beating this horse here, but you know they they do a really good job of setting up the, um, the interrelationship of the of the different peoples of the solar system. Yeah, the uh, the civil and social strife is not very subtle in this book. No, but I, I it's it's not subtle, but I think it's well done. Oh, so. absolutely. I mean, it, it can be heavy-handed and still like well done for sure. It's it, this is not a gripe on the book, but I'm just it does lack a lot of subtlety, but when it is your primary source of conflict in the in the socio-economic world that you've established, mm-hmm. you do kind of need to have a little bit of a heavier hand on it. Yeah. That's fair. Um so I guess let's get back to where we were. Uh, I guess with the 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 crew on the night yeah the round round out the story so far so they they uh they're kind of they're not really sure what to do they're they're a little bit worried that uh the martians are gonna disappear them or torture them um because after after their the message is broadcast um they get a call from the legal counsel of their company and they're like so that was a really, really bad idea, you know, doing the doing that public broadcast. You basically all but uh, blamed Mars for a you know a, a military attack, uh, in, a, in an act of war. That's what I'm looking for, an act of war here. Um, so we're just we've agreed to work with Mars to investigate. So you're gonna go fly over and report to the nearest Martian vessel, and also if you don't do this. Uh, we're going to declare you as some. You're one. You're fired, and two. We're going to say that you're stealing the ship, and so you're going to be basically at that point arrested anywhere you go. Yeah. So and that ship, by the way, being the uh, the Martian Navy vessel, the Donegar, which is a as as I think it was Amos put it, a ship that is so powerful it can hit a golf ball sized target on the other side of the solar system. So to call it a warship would be an understatement. This is a Death Star level ship that they're having to meet in 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 uh, what was it Jupiter that they were heading to? They're heading to Jupiter. I thought they were heading toward was they were they heading towards Saturn somewhere somewhere around there. Yeah, so uh, definitely feels like a bit of a uh, a suspicious overreaction that they're having to go meet up with. Uh, a death machine from Mars after yeah. them saying, hey, we found this Mars stamp on something that's tied to a ship that created that that just uh, committed a war crime. So 
definitely feels like uh, P and K is in the pocket of Mars right now. Yeah, I think I think that's something that we're gonna see. Uh, P and K is the the name of the company that um, that they work for the the, the iceberg haulers. Yes, sorry, um, should have clarified. So I guess one one thing that I, I actually have forgotten that little bit that Amos you mentioned about Amos saying that they could destroy a, a golf ball sized target from halfway across the galaxy or however he he put it that was that yeah so it's it's pretty clear to them that they're like yeah at best we're going to be we're going to be uh, taken prisoner at worst we're going to be tortured and then disappeared so yeah. they they come up to, with this idea to send a second transmission. They're transmitting ostensibly to the the Martian vessel, but they also again kind of do it on an open channel for everybody to hear. Yeah. Uh, where they're like, "Okay, hey, hey, Mars, we're gonna be over there, and we're going to totally cooperate with the investigation." All right, we'll see you soon. We'll see you in a few days. Okay, yeah. this is us. We're we're we are alive at this point, and just letting everybody know. It's like so, it's yeah. like if your boss sends you a threatening email, and in order to have a power play back to them, you just hit reply all. Exactly. It's they 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 really um. Yeah, they really just said reply all. <laughs> so 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 anyway, they they do that to kind of, in their mind. They're like, well, at worst, they can't kill us because there's going to be questions if if you know what happened to us. Well, he says we, it. He says it in the message directly. He says, uh, if, if anything happens to us, that just lends more credence to the idea that Mars did this. Oh, yeah. I guess that's, I, I, that's in the message. Okay, so so again, he kind of doubles down. And this is this is another thing that was a, a kind of a kind of a risky play. But um, so he basically is doubling down here. And uh, but I think he's he's hoping that by doing this, he can at least guarantee that they live. Um, I I don't know. You may not feel the same way about this, given your you're saying you saying earlier that you didn't feel a strong connection to Holden yet. But to me, dude, Holden is such a fucking baller. Like, oh my god, to hail the ship as they're leaving and being like, "Hey, motherfucker, here's all the people you killed," and then to also hail the Doniger and be like, "Hey, if you kill us, you're just gonna let everyone know it's you." By the way, we're telling everybody this too. So, uh, balls in your court, motherfucker. It's just it's it's just such a cool little just spitting in the face of authority thing that he did in like two different occasions and to me that just i i, I don't know it, it's just it's i think it's it's great character moments and i just i just smile at that and i'm like this dude's cool this dude's cool as hell i'm gonna enjoy following this guy's story they do they do uh definitely work as really nice character moments the reason i'm not really vibing necessarily is because i'm like this just feels very reckless and unnecessary. Like he's he's supposed to be responsible not just for himself, but for like being able to to give record of this this event and also the lives of the people on the night. Like it just feels like he's he's kind of he to me he's losing the plot a little bit in an attempt to and a very understandable and justified um, feeling of of rage in, in this incident. Because especially like we were saying, you know, you know his, you know his love interest, she's dead. You know, people he's worked. He says that I think they say at the beginning he's worked on this for was it nine years? It was five years. It was nine round trips, and they did two round That's trips right. a year. That is right. That was it was nine trips, five years. So he's you know these are people that he considers close friends because you know when you're on a vessel like that, you're you don't just work with these people. You you live with them. They are. 
you know, you if you don't become friends, you're going to hate them. And even <laughs> pretty as quickly. even as Ade told him, uh, he's comfortable there, and that's why yeah. he's not he's not planning on leaving. Even if she, even when she was planning on leaving after the next couple of cycles. Yeah, that's true. But I, I do think that your 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 criticism on Holden definitely holds true with the the hailing the uh, the attacking ship as they're leaving. It very much was a risky play that just happened to pay off in their favor. But at least with the sending the message to the Donegar and saying, "Hey, don't kill us, or else everyone's going to know you did it." Uh, that's something that the crew as a whole agreed on. That was something that he was like, "Let's do this in style because we can't run. So if we're going to give ourselves up, let's make sure we do this in in the biggest uh, the biggest way that covers our asses." And yeah, See, that, that's something that the, the crew more or less agreed on how they handle it. By that point, yes. Um, by that point, definitely. They're, they're, you, you've, you're too far gone, you know, at that point. You're in for a penny and for a pound. Um, the, the question I had was the previous transmission to like to broadcast on an open frequency, like what just happened? Because it, it caused, and this is something that um, uh, Miller mentions. He's like, he's a little bit frustrated at this point uh with holden because he's like he knows what that's that's gonna mean it means it's there's gonna be a lot of chaos and riots um yeah he's, that, that he's kick looking off. he's looking at what holden's doing as as stuff that's going to cause him problems on saris because of how the people are going to react to it which is very fair and and i don't i don't think it's fair to hold that against Holden, at least as a reader, because obviously he's not thinking about what the 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 societies on the the belt are going, how they're going to handle this. He's more so just thinking, I want to get justice and I want to cover our asses at the same time. So, I don't think he's thinking about it as a as a as a global big picture kind of thing, which is very fair. But yeah, it's understandable that Miller at the same time is just looking at it and he's like, oh, this 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 self proclaimed martyr self-righteous asshole sitting there putting us in this situation who does he think he is yeah i think i think there's a lot of uh i think they do he uh cory does a good job of creating a very um you two perspectives you know there, you uh, this is something people say a lot that you have to have like good good characters like they have their own distinct motivations and their own distinct uh perspectives and and to be honest I don't think a lot of things fully succeed in that. I think a lot of things they they kind of they 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 or if they do, there it's not as well fleshed out as they should be. And I think they um, I think they do a good job of like giving people with different uh, motivations and perspectives a very uh, understandable and believable uh, feeling to them. So, so that wraps up our story so far with Holden, but to, 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 to kind of wrap up Miller as well, uh, the riots have, have calmed down. Uh, Havelock is, is uh, seeking a transfer to a place that's a little more interplanetary friendly. And now yeah. he is, uh, at, the, at the behest of Havelock, is now investigating uh, the case that his boss put him and only him on, which is looking for and returning uh, Julie Mao to her family, her rich family that wants her back, and they suspect kidnapping, which I don't think I'd go as far as to say that she was kidnapped in the in the context of the Scopuli. That very much I, was a she went on her own, but I definitely think I would have thought that she was just dead. But the fact that that there's they're spending this much effort on her makes me think that she was taken by either whoever 
did what they did to the scopuli or something else entirely that we haven't seen yet well i think i think they don't really know where she is yet i think the kidnapping is in reference to what uh the they are wanting to what they're wanting uh miller to do they oh, want her you're him, right yeah they, they want him to kidnap her wherever she's at because you know as we see during the, his investigation so he, he breaks into her hole and then um he uses the universal password which again sus um, one two three he, four five oh my god it worked he he he, he it's like well i'm not gonna go there <laughs> but yeah he yeah basically one two three four five thanks and then he gets in and he's you know he's going through her stuff he's there he's he's going through her, her clothes and he's he's seeing her like achievements and he's 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 like oh what what's how what happened here what how did this you know this little rich girl with a big bright smile what what what's the what's the problem here and he breaks into her computer and he sees the communications and there's like a lo- a level of artifice to them where they are like the parents are, are attempting to be openly um they want to come off as understanding, but in in in, in, in reality, they're kind of being manipulative. It's very so they're th- like, thinly veiled manipulation. Come home or else. Basically, yeah, they're like they're they're making threats like if you don't come home, we're gonna get rid of. She she had been a racer um, at some point before this point in the story, and so they're like they're they're kind of threatening like, hey, we're gonna get rid of all of your racing stuff, you know, and then which I know that how that sounds, but they're like it's. It's it's all it's part of it was just something it's, that stuck out in part of people. a larger it's, it's it's elites that don't have any context to anything just trying to flex the only weight they can. Yeah, it's 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 that they're trying to use they're trying to find something that's important enough to her that they're going to be able to uh, to to find a way to control her. But to to Julie's credit, she's not obviously not going for it because she ain't you know, about that life kinda, anymore. Exactly. She's not she's not someone you can buy. Yeah. Um, and so so she's like, you know, you know, you do whatever you, you need to do with that stuff. And so it becomes but as he and uh, Miller, he what's kind of interesting is he he cracks open a beer in her in her uh, little apartment and he's yeah. reading her emails and he's like, don't do it, Julie, don't fall for it. He's, he's like very he's like rooting for her and yeah. so when she gives the terse response he's like yeah <laughs> which that was a pretty funny moment yeah um, that was a that was a fun little uh moment of endearment with miller and so after that he's um but but what what he, what happens that's kind of that's really interesting and this is kind of where we ended the reading just in general is he he looks at the last email and it's basically like something is going to happen in the uh in the in the belt very soon and it's going to be it's going to be big it's going to be really bad and you need to come home now there you know whatever we, we can figure out the the details in our of the relationship later but you need to leave right now yeah um which is very interesting it, it kind of it shows that there's some sort of foreknowledge at least among like the uh interplanetary elite about what is happening and what is about to happen. Yep, I, I sense a conspiracy that links this to the Canterbury situation, or at the very least, the Scopuli situation. I think the Canterbury was just the ship that happened on the distress signal. 
Yeah, I think I think that whatever is going to happen would have happened even if the Canterbury hadn't been there. But they just had the bad luck of being the flashpoint. Yeah, the question was not if, it was when. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of where we left off. And, you know, as I said back up at the top, I feel very strongly, uh, you know, positive at this point. Um, I'm, I'm liking it. I'm really interested in the story. And I'm, I'm very kind of excited for where, where it's going to go. We seem to conveniently pick really great spots to to stop at. I don't I don't know. It's it's that um, it's it's like you you remember when we used to watch movies together uh, when we lived closer by, and uh, I I would just I'd be able to pause, just find the right perfect moments to pause while someone's making a, like a really weird face. Yeah, it's we would stop like for that. conversation, it's, and you just happen to pause it on the funniest still you could find just by pure chance. It's it's just, it's that it's just I I still have that that innate natural sense of when to pause. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny because like when you asked me how far you think we should aim to go for this first episode, I was just like I don't know the closest chapter to page one hundred, which is more or less what you suggested initially with House of Leaves, but I was much more confident we'd be able to hit this mark uh, with this book comparatively. Yeah, this is. Yeah, this is a very different book to House of Leaves. I, I you probably have noticed that there's a lot more. I guess plot discussion, but that's kind of the nature of these books. Like there are themes, and I think we did a good job of talking about them. Particularly the the themes about class and uh, like the sort of colonial relations. But I, I think a lot of what this is is this is a, like a more plot and character driven story. Yeah. And so I think I think that's going to be how that's going to kind of reflect in how these episodes go. Yeah, and uh, as as you can see also, it, it really cuts down our discussion time. So yeah, hey Nikolai, we did it. We cut down the episode time. Yes, our, our, our good friend. Uh, well, some of the, we've, I, I think I really like those early episodes that we've done, but um, I'm glad, happy to see us ending around here. Yeah, this is definitely a more digestible uh, time frame to, to, to cover. And I, I, I think this is... Uh, it's 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 a different beast entirely because we we went from this incredibly weird, uh, just super analytical, abstract novel with House of Leaves, and I, now I feel like this this is this is this is our we just ran the marathon and now we're on our cool down walk with Leviathan Wakes, which is just a great sci-fi, just what you see is what you get really well written really fun story that is an absolute page turner that is just it's just a fun read and i am i'm so happy i i picked this i i've been wanting to read this this book for a long time for years now and this was just a perfect excuse to finally pick it up and read it and i'm so happy with that because i love this book already it's fantastic and i'm so excited to to keep going into it and i think that's nothing shows that better than the first week of House of Leaves we stopped at was like page 30 something where after reading chapter 4 and after the first week of uh, Leviathan Wakes we read 100 pages. We're already 16-17% of the way through the book and I all I'm thinking about is I can't wait to get back into this. I can't wait to see what happens next. And that's not a slight on House of Leaves. These are completely different. They're non-comparable books. Yeah, it's just, you know, using different... Um... I don't want to say parts of your brain, but it almost feels like that. It's just, it's just, di- there's just a, a different level about what's, what's going on. Like at uh, House of Leaves, you're, you're not really, you're not just reading the book. You're having to do like a certain 
interpretation whereas here you know it's it's a it's a lot it's a little bit easier a little more flowing a little bit more in my wheelhouse yeah um but yeah, i i but do yeah. think i i think that's a a nice spot that i think we can end today on uh, a shorter episode comparatively to house of leaves but i think this is something that we should probably aim for being the standard maybe this being one of the more longer side videos yeah i definitely agree but yeah that was uh that was the first episode of leviathan wakes uh we are going to be starting on chapter 10 this next week and i don't know how far we're going to go but i am excited to see where it takes us definitely uh you know thank you everyone for listening and uh we will see you next time yep see you later